0: You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Amen. You may be seated. Wow, wasn't that powerful? I mean, first, let's thank our worship team. They led us in that. It's not about them, I know. But let's, let's also praise God because that's all what, what it's all about. The glory is for him. So let's just give up another round of applause, another shout of joy for God. What a powerful moment. We're continuing our sermon series on making space for prayer, right? Making space. And you might recall that a few weeks ago we did a workshop. It was a little less ceremony. It was more along the lines of, let's just do prayer. Let's just build it and do it. And let's make a commitment to praying because we understand that prayer is foundational to our lives. It's not something that we do to check off a list. But more importantly, it is what centers us. It centers us. And so Pastor Jason, uh, he, he really, I think he already communicated this a few times. We had envisioned something else. We had talked about something else in terms of a sermon series. And Pastor Jason really felt that God was calling us right now to move into this space. Um, and in doing so, even as we did the prayer workshop, he came back and said, I, I feel like God is putting on my heart that we should talk even more about this In that workshop, we mentioned using the Lord's prayer as a model. We mentioned that there's kind of four movement in four movements, excuse me, in the Lord's prayer. There's four main things because you don't have to necessarily repeat verbatim the Lord's prayer, though that is not something that we're saying you shouldn't do. You can do that, but more importantly, when Jesus teaches us to pray through the Lord's prayer, there's kind of four movements. The first one is awe-filled worship, we said. The second one was renewal of the world. You you pray for the the world to be renewed when you say your kingdom come, your will be done. Then you express your dependence on God, asking for bread, and then repentance and action. In reality, those last three movements are solidly connected, rooted, founded upon awe-dependent worship. You can't... You can't pray for the renewal of the world without having awe-filled worship or adoration. Your dependence on God is, in fact, through that awe-filled worship, through the understanding of who he is and who I am. And your repentance and action, how I choose to improve as a Christian believer, as a disciple of Jesus, is also rooted in the understanding of who God is and who I am with respect to that. Because of his promises, because of the way that he invites me into his presence, despite my sin, he makes the space. He's always awaiting, looking to the horizon for my return. And because he's doing that, because of my awe-filled worship, I can, yes, repent and take action because I understand who God is. So it's all rooted in that first line of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's all rooted there. And so Pastor Jason wanted us to kind of slow down through those movements, talk a little bit about these things that we kind of do through the Lord's Prayer, but starting today with adoration. Fancy word for worship, adoration. If you look up the definition of adoration in a dictionary, it says to worship or to give worship. So adoration, it sounds fancier. I like it. Uh, Pete Gregg, who um, is uh, one of the founders of the 24-7 prayer movement and also of the Lectio 365 app that we use a lot here, he likes to use that phrase. Um, And so we'll, we'll use that today. So today we're talking about adoration specifically. So we're kind of going through these movements of the different ways and the different things that we do in communion with God and prayer to God. And so adoration, if if everything hinges on adoration, <laughs> we got to change our understanding of adoration. If everything that I do and pray, if everything about my interaction with God starts with adoration, I need to rethink it. Because as as we are, of course, flawed because of our own sin and because of our own futile ways of thinking, God invites us to renew our minds and to see worship differently, to see adoration differently. So here are some misconceptions that people have about worship or adoration. Some misconceptions. I'm not saying all of you have these misconceptions. I'm not saying any of you have these misconceptions. I'm saying some people have misconceptions. The first one, people do it because they have to. I worship because I, I, I need to do it. It's, it's part of my God gave me a to-do list and I'm supposed to worship. That's what I do because it's what's required of me. Number two, I do it to keep God happy with me. I do it to keep God happy with me. The first thing, this, this caveat, we'll come back to this later. What Jesus did, what Jesus did, excuse me, tells us that there's literally nothing you can do to make God happier with you. Do you understand that? There is nothing that you can do or not do to make God happy with you. So we need to correct that misconception. It's not like, well, God today is happy with me because today I prayed, or God is unhappy with me because I didn't pray. No, God is happy with me because of what Jesus did for me, which started anyway because God loves me. God's love for me is not dependent on my actions. It is who he is. God is love. He is love. And the most prominent description of God's love in the Old Testament is that it is unfailing love. It doesn't fail and it is not dependent on your ability to perform as a Christian. It is dependent on who he is. So... Doing prayer, specifically worship to keep God happy, is pointless. It it takes some time to get that through your head because we've been trying to please God our whole lives. But doing worship to keep God happy is pointless because of who he is. Third misconception, that a lot of times worship and adoration is mindless and it's heartless and, that it, and for some traditions, it could be a ritualized chanting, repeating of words, a ritual chant. Something you go, you go through the motions, it's repetitive, and again, mindless and heartless. And then the fourth thing that we tend to uh, confuse about worship is that sometimes we see it as transactional. Come on. I pray, I worship specifically because if I worship God, he gives me. Or He answers my prayers. Or He hears my prayers more when I worship Him. None of this is true. So, whether I see the adoration component of prayer as transactional or whether I see it as mindless and heartless or whether I do it because it keeps God happy and because I have to, those aren't the points of adoration. Those aren't the reasons I worship God. See, if you're Just doing it without your heart it kind of isn't happening. Worship without heart isn't worship. Jesus says, speaking in Matthew 15, 7 through 8, he says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I could say praise God all day. And if my heart isn't, if my affections aren't involved, it's heartless worship. And Jesus is saying, Look, don't go through the motions. For crying out loud, understand what worship is. That's what we're here to do today. And here's if there's a main tag that you could take away with you today that, that, that I feel God is showing me in my life, is that biblical adoration or worship is the act of eating the spiritual bread that sustains us. I'm going to read that again. Adoration is the act of eating the spiritual bread that sustains us. That's what biblical adoration is it is the act of receiving, consuming, enjoying the spiritual bread that sustains us. God says, Jesus specifically says, the the specific person of the Trinity, Jesus the Son, he says that he is the bread. He is the bread. Another way to think about it is that I love this description. It comes from the Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer is what the Anglican church uses when they practice communion, right? So if you've been to a Catholic church and you've participated in communion, Anglicans have a similar thing. And when they do that liturgical uh, practice of communion in every one of their masses, uh, Anglicans or of their services... um, Here's what the book of common prayer, the book that they use in all of their communions say. Here's what it says, excuse me, about adoration. Adoration is the lifting up of the heart and mind to God, asking nothing but to enjoy God's presence. That encapsulates a lot, so I'm going to read it again. Adoration is the lifting up of the heart, not heartless, and mind, not mindless, to God Asking nothing but to enjoy God's presence. Not transactional. I am not expecting to receive anything but God. That's what adoration is. Adoration is not me asking for this or that. That has its moment and place in prayer. But what everything is rooted in is, at the end of it, God, if anything, give me you. At the end of it, if anything, give me you. May I enjoy who you are. That's the foundation of prayer. That's what adoration is. It's not heartless. It's not mindless. And it's not transactional. It is personal. It is personal. It is intimate. Worship is not transactional. It is the recognition that God is all we truly need. Worship is not transactional. I don't do it to get from God. It is the recognition that God is all we truly need because at the end of the day, if my job provides bread for me and my family, it is because God has allowed it and God has mandated and God has provided and God opened and closed the doors to put me in that situation. And God has allowed that corporation, that government agency, or whatever it is, to function within society so that I can be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And through that, yes, receive some compensation. But it is God's. I understand that anything that I receive is ultimately of God's from his provision, from his sovereignty, the fact that he runs the show. He allows whatever happens to happen. So it... I understand that ultimately, everything I need, whether it's food, Jesus said, if you're anxious about your clothing, then seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first God for himself, and all this other stuff is added. All I truly need is in him. But more importantly, it's not just that every of the resources, financial, food, clothing, is provided by God. It's even deeper than that. It's that ultimately all I need is Him. All I need at the end of it is Him. Later we're going to see a psalm where the psalmist David says, Look, even if I die, your love, that's it. That's what's sufficient. So even if you don't have your love, your, your life, your love... Is the center of your adoration to God. It's all you need, not even your life. All you need is God. So worship is not transactional, it is the recognition that God is all we truly need. That's why Psalm 23, verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I don't need anything else. The Lord is my shepherd. I need nothing else because he provides for me what I need in terms of necessities, human necessities, and more importantly, he provides himself. He provides himself. Psalm 27, this is all over the biblical narrative from Old to New Testament. Psalm 27, verse 4, what does the psalmist say? The psalmist prays, One thing have I asked of the Lord one, not food. Not water. Those things are important. They have their place. They're coming later in the prayer. But right now we're in adoration. It says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. I'm going to seek. I'm going to be proactive in seeking after this. What is that? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. This is about enjoying God's presence. It is about enjoying who God is. It is about enjoying someone's company, God's company. When we get together with our friends and family, sometimes it doesn't even matter what we're doing. We're enjoying each other's presence. And the same is true about God ever so more. The psalmist is just saying, let me be in your presence. Let me admire you. Let me enjoy you for who you are. And let me inquire in your temple. Psalm 84. A few sporadic verses from Psalm 84. Starting at least first at verse 1 all the way through 4. How lovely is your dwelling place. Dwell. Adoration is about remaining in God's presence. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs. Yes, faints. For the courts of the Lord, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. You see, this isn't heartless and mindless adoration. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell, remain in the presence of God. Dwell Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else, better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now pause for a second. This psalm, just like the previous one, and just like a lot of the psalms, they had been compiled into this book we call the book of Psalms as a prayer and song book for a people who were exiled. These were people that were exiled from Israel. That means they weren't at the temple. They weren't in the courts of God. They were longing for it. They were unable. See, In the Old Testament, the narrative of the Old Testament is all about bringing us to adoration, to bringing us to Eden. Think about it for a second. In Genesis, we start at the Garden of Eden where the presence of God is at a maximum and God and humanity are together. We mess that up. And from that moment on... It's not directly said, but it is indirectly repeated over and over again. The people of Israel are searching for a new Eden, a new temple. Where do they go from there? Eventually, they end up, after leaving in the exodus from Egypt, they end up with a tabernacle, a tent. That's their temple. And after the tabernacle, eventually the commissioning of building a temple. A place where this is what we're supposed to return to. It's Eden. Whether it was in the tent or whether it's in the building, what is our soul yearning for? It is for direct communion with God. So there was a tent mimicking what Eden was. And there was a temple mimicking what Eden was. Now, I know some of you are are Christian nerds in the house. What's the new temple now? Yes. This temple. This temple. The Holy Spirit, key word, dwells in you. It dwells in you, and when we get together, there's a special, like, harmonization of our souls where we together as a, bodily of, a body of believers, we together are the body of God. This building, as Pastor Jason was saying, is not the church We represent the church. We are the body. We are the new dwelling place. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation, that's the point. God dwells in his people. Dwell in the presence of God. You think this is a minor thing? No, adoration is the whole point. And Jesus, you might think, well, where is Jesus in this? He made that possible. He, the perfect tent, the perfect temple, made it possible for us to now not have to wait in exile, to someday get back to Israel, to get to a temple that is mimicking the new Eden. No, it's here. It starts here, individually and corporately. We don't have to long for the courts of God. Sure, we long for the fullness, for the, 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 the full version of what we experience now when we are in the presence of Christ. We long for that. But can we get a slice of that now? Oh, yes. We can get a slice of that now. We can enjoy God's presence now. We can dwell with Him now. See, adoration is an affectionate response to who God is, number one. And number two, it is also a sustaining exercise for me. It sustains me. You got to understand that for your day to carry on and you be able to sustain yourself in the middle of so much trial, loss, uncertainty, death, sickness. You have to sustain yourself in the presence of God. Adoration is one, an affectionate response to who God is and his love for you. But two, it is also a sustaining exercise. It feeds you. It keeps you running. It keeps you going. If we approach adoration instead of as a checklist that I have to do, that it has to be mindless and I If instead of that, we approach it as my affection for God, based on who he is (laughs) and what he did for me, and this is good for me, it sustains me, that's a game changer. And we all have to remind ourselves of this all the time. The reason I'm preaching on this is because I feel God calling me on this all the time. Like, reshape your mind. You know it, but you don't know it yet. You know this is, but you still approach me transactionally. You still do worship a lot of times just because you're supposed to. There is nothing you can do to make me more loving of you. I love you. And that's why my son died for you. By name. By name. Not just for a mass of believers, but for individual believers. Individual believers. He died for you by name. Jesus knows his sheep by name. Come on. He knows you individually. He died for you individually. Augustine, St. Augustine said something like, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember the quote, but he died for you. He died for us the same way he would have died just for you if you were the only human being on earth. Do you get that? It is that individual So it's an affectionate response to who God is. In 1 John, one of the closest disciples of Jesus reminds us, we love because he loved us first. We don't transaction because he loved us first. We love because he loved us first. In Psalm 63, David, contemplating on, I'm probably going to die at the hands probably of my own son, who was on the hunt for David, he expresses, look, even if you don't save me from this, even if I never get to reign over Israel again, even if I don't eat another meal today, whatever it is, it's worth it because your love is better than life. Even if I die today. So Psalm 63 verse 1, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, meaning authentically, and with you know, with passion. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That is affection, it's not transaction. So, what do you do in response to this if you're David? So, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love. Remember, steadfast just means never fails. It's a fancy Bible word for unfailing. In fact, I think NLT uses usually unfailing. Whatever your translation says, it means nothing you can do can throw away his love. Because of your unfailing love that is better than life, my lips will praise you. Because your steadfast or unfailing love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I don't praise because I'm supposed to. I praise because I want to. Because his love moves me. So I will bless you as long as I live, even if I die today. If you're David, right? That's what he's thinking. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. He is enjoying the company of God. If presence sounds too spiritually, it's the company of the good shepherd, the company of the one that is so much holier and so much above us, and yet he chooses to dwell with us, to be like us, to be a human. And now because of that, I can say, yes, you're so holy, hallowed be your name, but I can call you father. I can call you friend. You dwell in this dirty temple, in this dirty tent. You dwell here. That's beautiful. A affectionate response. I probably quote this next passage every single time I'm up here. And I apologize for that. But it's my life mantra in a sense. It's Paul saying exactly that. Because of what you did for me, now I love you. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm going to change the way I live. Why? Out of adoration. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself. Paul isn't saying even for us. He's saying for me because it is that personal. Make this your cry. I love Jesus because he loved me. He gave himself for me. See, Jesus, he invites us to enjoy his presence. That's what adoration is. It is about enjoying his company, who he is. He invites us into an affectionate relationship. And because of what he has expressed to me, in the most expressive act ever, laying down his life for me, then I must love. It's almost undeniable. Some of you have dogs. I love dogs, and people make fun of me because I'm a dog dad, right? I don't even have kids. I'm a dog dad. But it's like the first dog we got, she's a little Maltese like that, and my wife wanted it. And she said, I really want a Maltese. I was like, no, that's a, that's a little fluff dog. I want a dog I can like wrestle. Ah. You know, I want a dog I can like, ah, come on. I don't want a little fluff dog. And she got it. Or she, like, I eventually got this little dog for her as a Christmas gift. By the way, I'm avoiding her name. Let me, let me explain why. Here in California, her name means pot. But in Puerto Rico, it's a common pet name. Her name is Mota. Okay? I know that's weird, and I discovered that at the vet when the vet attendant was like, ah! It's like, no, no, that's, that's not why she's called Mota. It means something else in Puerto Rico. Calm down. Um, so I didn't want Mota, but I got Mota, and she loved me. Yeah, I know. That sounds weird, too. All right. I got, I'm going to do what my wife does. She just she changes her name. Mot- Motis. That's what my wife says. I got (laughs) Motis, and Motis loved me so much that I couldn't help it. My mom, who's here today, Maritza, mom, say hi. My mom flew in from Puerto Rico, and that's her boyfriend, Israel. Say hi, Israel. (laughs) Um, My mom, she was there that Christmas because Katia was actually in Puerto Rico visiting her family, and my mom flew in. And so I got (laughs) Motis before Katia even arrived at the house. And my mom saw the transformation. <laughs> and she was like, I can't believe what you've become <laughs> for this dog. And to this day, she reminds me of that. She was there. She... But the point is, when you receive unconditional love beyond that of a puppy, <laughs> when you receive unconditional love, there's nothing you can do other than love back. And when you receive the love of Yeshua, Jesus, Jesus, The anointed one who is meant to be king, who is meant to be worshipped, who yet comes in a manger, who dies the sinner's death, who comes to be and dwell with us all dirty. When we're loved like that and known by name like that and purposed like that, you can't help but love back. When even the sins I haven't committed that I'm going to commit next week are taken care of on that cross because of his love for me. Like, dude. Like, yes, you got to love back. It's, you can't help it. If you struggle with that love, maybe, maybe, as all of us are struggling with it, you might be struggling with accepting how much he loves you. Yeah. You might be struggling with accepting, no, it can't be that he loves me this much. I mean, do you know what I did? Do you know what I've done? Do you know what I sometimes still do? It can't be that he loves me that much. That's for y'all. But no, Jesus died for you by name. He does love you that much. And if you struggle with the affections of adoration, you need to sit for a second in God's presence and listen to that love. That loves you, yes, despite what you've done or still do and will do, He loves you. In Hebrews, it says, quoting the Old Testament, that God will remember your sins no more. Erase, etch a sketch. Sorry for those of you too young, just delete or undo. Undo. There you go, undo. <laughs> That's how much God loves us. And we can't help but change the way we live and change how we respond to God. It is an act of worship. Adoration, we said, and with this long passage we'll end. Uh, adoration is, at the beginning we said, the act of eating the spiritual bread that sustains you. It sustains you. It is the enjoyment And sustaining that I receive from that bread. So just listen to Jesus talk about it in John 6. Starting at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Now listen to this. If you're struggling with transactional issues, when Jesus starts this whole spiel that, he, that we're looking at on the screen, he had just fed the 5,000 people with bread and he had just walked over water. Now, if you're an Israelite, you're saying, is this dude like Moses? We just, like, Moses walked us through water and Moses gave us manna, the bread from heaven. And watch what Jesus does. He's saying, I'm not just like Moses. I'm what Moses was pointing to. I am that bread. When he walked you through the ocean, he was pointing to me, the one that walks on the ocean. So he says, because you ate your fill of loaves, that's why you're looking for me, because you got what you transactionally needed do not work for food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give to you for on him god the father has set his seal then they said to him what must we do to be doing the works of god jesus answered them this is the work of god that you believe in him who has sent who whom he has sent excuse me so they said to him then what sign do you do remember he just did those two things that we may see and believe you What work do you perform? They know what they're doing here. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now think about this. If you're an Israelite and you're saying this to Jesus, you're like, Moses gave me bread from heaven every day. You just fed us today. He gave us bread from heaven. Jesus is like, fool, I am the bread from heaven. (laughs) (laughs) And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's spiritual thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. You're so hung up on the manna, they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I will bring you up. I will raise you up. You will die, but I will rise you up. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now I have to make a small parenthesis here. Because after this, he goes on to very explicitly say, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And I know some of you ha- have been hurt from traditions that have taken a different interpretation of that. And I'm not bashing on those traditions. No, I'm thankful because I grew up Catholic. And I'm, I'm thankful for my Catholic upbringing. I'm thankful because it laid the foundation for me. But here's the, here's the thing. The very thing that maybe some of you might have been deprived of because at some point the Catholic Church or some other liturgical church said you can no longer have communion. It's not a physical flesh of Jesus. (laughs) The physical flesh of Jesus is in heaven, in the presence of the Father. It is not a physical blood. It is the body broken like bread for you and me. He broke that bread. It's been broken. The blood has already been spilled. And it was for the new covenant that guarantees that now, right now, no need to go to mass, no need to go to this service here, no need to go to any denomination. Now you can dwell in the presence and enjoy the bread. Now, right now, nothing deprives you from experiencing that. So if you have hurt because of how you've been dismissed in the past, maybe by an unfortunate, I think, respectfully misunderstanding, personally, and I, I say that's my own interpretation, if you've been hurt by that, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in heaven. He doesn't make any exceptions. Are you the thief on the cross? Because you're invited to the bread. You are invited. To experience the presence of God now. To be satisfied like food for your soul, like the psalmist said. That is all available in Jesus now. You want to eat his bread? Consume his word. Sure, we do communion here once a month, and that's an important practice. But if you want to consume the flesh of Jesus take his word into your heart. If you want to consume the blood of Jesus, apply the blood that cleanses over you. In John, it's in 1 John it says his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So be forgiven through the blood and be transformed through the word you consume. Consume that bread, enjoy it and let it permeate through everything you do like Paul who says, I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. I adore you, God, because you love me even though I don't deserve it. As the worship team comes back, I I want us to just take a moment to pause and listen to what God has to say. You know, adoration can start with silence. This is something God is really speaking to me because when I start adoration, I run into a list of things to say to God of how awesome he is. And that's not bad. But the moment I convince myself to be silent, I am accepting that there's nothing I can do for him to accept me into his presence. Do you understand that? If you pause before you even begin speaking and you accept that at that moment as you just calm down and breathe and seek his face, you're in his presence. Because there's nothing you have to do to earn his presence. Jesus did. There is nothing you have to do to earn his presence. Jesus did. So pause for a moment. Stay quiet. Listen. Close your eyes. And what is, what is Yahweh speaking to you? What is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? What is the shepherd that gives his own life for you speaking to you? Quiet your minds. If you get distracted, that's okay. Just bring it back. Quiet. Go to the green pastures that the good shepherd leads you to. What loving affirmation is God's yelling with affection to you. And then in response, adore. Have a quiet moment to listen and adore because he loves you. No exceptions. He loves you. Sit there. Thank you, Jesus. You know me by name. Thank you, Jesus. Despite all my running, you lead me to green pastures. Despite all my striving and all my stress, you lead me to still waters, to calming waters. Thank you, Jesus. My soul is out of whack, and you restore my soul. You lead me in the path of a good disciple for your name's sake. And even if I go through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't take me out of it. You join me there. You are with me. I don't need to be afraid because you have your staff and your rod, and I have comfort in that. Thank you because you are the good shepherd. You prepare a table before me in the presence of all the craziness I'm going through right now. Right now, as I'm experiencing this craziness, you are with me preparing a banquet. And my cup overflows. Despite, even if my life, even if I'm at the end of my life, even if things won't resolve themselves, I know goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you because you invite us to just enjoy your company. May we, Father, be people who adore you, not mindlessly, not heartlessly, but with our affections. May we be sustained by your presence. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.